Well, this is a fascinating story. I don't know if um, you're a big fan of Egyptology. I spent some time in Egypt working. I've been to the to the Great Pyramid at Giza. I even went inside the Great Pyramid at Giza, actually. I was there for work uh, during, uh, well, it was, it was actually during the Libyan War, so it wasn't really about Egyptology, but we got to stay in Cairo for a while, so took advantage of seeing some of those things. They really are absolutely spectacular. When you see the Nile or you see the pyramids or the Sphinx, it really is, I mean, these are things you've read about all your life, right? So it really is pretty, pretty majestic. Um, but back here in Canada, Canada, there is a guy at Western University, a bioarchaeologist who's known as the mummy guy, for good reason, as you'll find out. He's part of a three-person team um, that has gone to put a new face, worked on putting a new face on ancient history. You know, it was 100 years ago this year that King Tut's grave was first investigated, first found. Uh, and Andrew Nelson at Western uh, has been working with, human, with remains at archaeological sites for, for a long time, and his work has helped put a new face on King Tut, the boy king. It's all for a documentary that explores, a PBS documentary that really looks back at at uh, the pharaoh's life and death. Um, here is Andrew Nelson explaining a little bit about his work. I've worked with a lot of mummies, but there's only one King Tut. So the goal of the production is, is to actually tell Tut's story as a person. The best way to know about people of the past is to actually look at mummies and skeletons and things. And so here we've got the actual mummy of Tut. The, the task that I was given then was to work with the scan, to segment the skull out from the scan so that we could get a 3D print, and then to work with Christian on the actual facial reconstruction. So the program that, that I use here is called Dragonfly. It's a very, very powerful tool to take a CT scan and to really look what's inside something. That creates the model that we use for the 3D print. For me to be able to have King Tut here on my computer and to be working to, to be part of this process of reconstructing the face was an amazing experience. It is an absolutely amazing story. Imagine being tasked and being given access to the remains to allow modern technology to put a truer face on perhaps the most famous of pharaohs, King Tut, the boy king who died at 19, all to commemorate, commemorate the 100th anniversary uh, since the revealing of his tomb, really. And Andrew Nelson bioarchaeologist, professor and chair of anthropology at Western University, joins us now. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much for the invitation. This must have been such uh, an amazing offer in, in your shoes to be given the opportunity to try to use Tut's skull and, and recreate an image, sort of help tell his story. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, so it was, it was my colleague Sahar who uh, who first emailed me about about the project and said, "Are you interested in being part of this?" And I said, "Are you kidding?" Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's there's a Western connection there too, is there not? Yeah. So so Sahar did her uh, radiology residency here. It just so happened to be that was right at the same moment as I had borrowed some mummies from the Royal Ontario Museum, and literally the first day she was here was the day we were scanning the mummies. And so she walked into the CT suite and, and, and there was a mummy. And so, so we've just kept in touch ever since she went back to Egypt after her residency. She's a, you know, a very accomplished radiologist, but she's also the, the, the ra clinical radiologist, but she's also the, the radiologist to the royal mummies now.
a friend in a high place, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. So to speak. Um, your interest in mummies goes way back too, and it's and it's quite a, a great story because I think your interest in mummies is is the same interest that so many of us have had in Egyptology in general, which is we saw it in a museum. Yeah. So so actually, I, I moved here to to Western in the fall of '94. And um, a few years later, there was an article in the London Free Press that came out on on a mummy from Chatham, which is just about an hour west of here. And uh, she had been sent up to Ottawa and come back for for some work from the Canadian Conservation Institute. Just I cut out the article, I stuck it to my pinboard on the wall, and I thought, yeah, you know, one of these days I'd really like to go see that. <laughs> and and then uh, a couple of years later, a couple of friends of mine, Jerry Conlog and, and Ron Beckett, worked out a deal with National Geographic to to do a 13 episode season called The Mummy Roadshow. And so they called me up and they said, hey, Andrew, you got a mummy. And I said, well, I don't, but I know where one is. <laughs> and so literally, I, you know, I, I sort of I emailed Chatham and then went out to see them and tried, you know, built up a little bit of a relationship with them. And so we we filmed actually the first episode of that season out out there at Chatham with with their mummy. And then I got a chance later to, to CT scan that mummy and it all just kind of took off from there. Yeah, the rest is uh, is ancient history, so to speak. Um, which, what is remarkable? I mean, I think Tut, although I gather not the most certainly far from the most important of pharaohs, because of the discovery of his tomb intact, has become sort of the rock star of that world. So the opportunity—it's been a hundred years now, right? This was what this whole project was about: was trying to right. tell a different story about Tut a hundred years later. Right. Right. So, it, I mean, it, it, it all depends on how you define important, right? Right. But, you know, in terms of political power, he, he wasn't all that important. But in terms of, of telling us about ancient Egypt and, and capturing people's imaginations, he's super important. And, and you know, that that's that's why we're here. That's why we're having this conversation, yeah. right? And, <laughs> he, I mean, he's certainly the most recognizable name in Egyptian history, absolutely. I think, around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely. Tell me a bit about the impact of then of that discovery. Then a hundred years later, we were. What would be the, what's left? What questions have been answered in a hundred years, and what mysteries remain? Oh wow! Well, I mean, I guess there's a lot of them. Yeah, that's, that's a loaded yeah, question. Where yeah. to start? <laughs> I I think sort of figuring out the relationships within among the royal mummies. I think that's one of the key relationships, and that was one of the things that that was really highlighted in that in that uh, that PBS episode was that, that you know they did they didn't uh, silver coat the idea that different people have different ideas, right? Right. And uh, you know, particularly who who is Tut's mother and 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 what killed Tut, right? And and so there were real differences of opinion in terms of those. But it's it's also you know just getting a better understanding of of, of Egyptian life and death in general. And one of the things that I really like to focus on when I'm studying Egyptian mummies is people have this sort of caricature in their mind of the the Herodotus description of, you know, removed the brain through the nose, took all the organs out, left the heart. And and it turns out there's a lot of variability and, and that description only fits for some. And and so the work that I've been doing with Egyptian mummies has been trying to better understand what's underlying that variability and and to sort of map it out. Is this a regional variability? Is this temporal variability? And and to me, that that's one of the most interesting questions for me. Really? So mummification was not um, a uniform process? No, absolutely not. No, I mean, but, but you know, if you just Google how did the ancient Egyptian mummify their dead, you know, you'll get this pat description. But it turns out it's 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 a lot more complicated, and I think a lot more interesting. 
Yes. Uh, tell me a bit about the importance of trying to do the imaging as you did it. What what that added to the story a hundred years later? Well, so so the, the the key thing underlying the use of either X rays or CTs on mummies is it's non destructive. A lot of back certainly in the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, the way you studied mummies was you unwrapped them. So you you lose the context of any artifacts that are with the mummy. You you still depending on how enthusiastic the mummy unrollers were, you you may still have the the, the corpse itself. But often then they, they autopsied those as well, and, and you've just got a sort of a pile of bits. So from my perspective, the most important thing about X-ray and CT is is the fact that it's non-destructive. And you, and you keep the mummy itself as, as what I call a microcosm. And I actually I have a field project in Peru, and, and we do this. We X-ray and we CT scan. They are much more bundles. There's the individuals inside in the seated flexed position. My project there is called Mummies as Microcosms. And it's so you're looking at the artifacts, you're looking at the individual, you're looking at the biology and the culture all sort of wrapped up together. So modern technology has really given us a whole new look into this ancient world. It, it's huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The challenge is then because you were given access to Tut, I mean, literally access to Tut. Uh, where do you start when it comes to trying to recreate what uh, the boy king may have looked like? So my task was to do what's called segmentation. So I, I take the CT scan and you can see different things have different densities in the CT scan. So bone has, has, is quite dense. Pat, resin and linen packing in the cheeks is a little bit less dense. And then, you know, some residual skin has, has a particular density. And so what I was trying to do was segment those into different, what are called regions of interest. So I was trying to create a model that had only the bone. And and so the challenge with that was that his Balmers used a lot of resin with him. Right. And and so that made it actually extremely difficult to separate the resin from the bone. And uh, the software I use, it's called Dragonfly. It, it actually has a deep learning capability that I was able to exploit. And so I trained it on, on a number of slices. And then I, I said, Go for it, <laughs> and and so I, I you know I left it running overnight on the computer literally, and came back the next day, and then I still had about fifteen fifteen twenty hours of of sort of cleaning cleaning up to do. I guess the the resin would really sh change the shape of the face, right? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so they, they they packed the cheeks in particular, and and to to try and maintain the shape of the face, but you know it's as, as it shrinks and desiccates, it it changes the shape of the face, and so I had to get that stuff off of the skull in order to to actually be able to create the virtual model of the skull. And then once I had that virtual model, then I went and I took that and we did a 3D print. And so then we had from the virtual, we then had a physical model of the skull. And that's what Christian, the artist, had to work from. Andrew Nelson is with us. He's a professor and chair of anthropology at Western University. We're talking about a project that he's just been involved in, uh, part of a two-part PBS series called King Tut Allies and Enemies to mark 100 years since the opening of the boy king's tomb. And uh, Andrew Nelson, a bioarchaeologist, has set about, was given the, the very enviable task of recreating what King Tut would have looked like. Uh, I mean, he died very young, 19. Um, how he died exactly remains something of a mystery. What he looked like may be something less of a mystery now. So you've recreated the, the skull. Uh, an artist then takes over and does work on it. What, uh, what, did, what did you come up with and how different was it from what you expected? So it was, it was quite 
quite different from from what we expected. A lot of the other reconstructions really emphasize the fact that oh maybe he had club foot and you know maybe he was lame and and so they the the most recent one in particular really emphasizes his sickly look and then there were some reconstructions before one was on a computer that that ends up with a very very sort of wooden look and so so we worked with with so the, so the first thing in order to do the facial reconstruction is you have to put little markers on the skull that tell you how how thick to build out to on the skin and those vary quite a bit from population to population. And we found a data set for modern Egyptian populations. Now, obviously, that's not going to be perfect for ancient Egyptian populations, but it's certainly better than a, a, a sample of, of American whites or American blacks. That was one of the things that was a bit different, but what we did with what other people had done. And so then you build it muscle by mus- muscle. You actually work th- you know, reverse engineer the anatomy essentially to, to to build things up to those markers. And one of the things it did was actually his 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 back teeth are behind right. his front teeth. Yeah. Um, that didn't look all that extreme. The other thing that we 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 decided that that we would make him one of his crowns. Right. And so we we picked the capresh, which is his battle crown. And so it's it's this sort of weirdly shaped oblong thing that goes on his head and and it's it's illustrated in blue in 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 paintings of him and it's got the cobra up at the front and he does have a slightly oddly shaped skull there's you know it's it's got a little bit of a sort of an indentation along here but with the compression on that that goes away and so so you end up with a much more a much more human looking face than than either the sickly look or the real overbite look or the funny shaped head look and 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 then you, so you start to just think about him just as as a pharaoh yeah or or you might recognize him if you saw him on the street kind of which is right. uh, which is so different from before from the, some of the other representations yeah yeah so so it's facial reconstruction it's often called face, facial approximation mm-hmm. um and and absolutely i mean i'm not going to claim that that's a perfect reproduction of what would have looked like but the idea is just what you just said is is that somebody who knew him would would probably look at that and go oh yeah i recognize that yeah there's tut um the value of this i guess and and this is just part of the one the century uh a century after the the opening of the tomb is that it, it adds another layer to what we understood about this most famous of egyptian pharaohs yeah, so so when I analyze a skeleton or a mummy, what I'm trying to do is tell their what we call the osteobiography. It's what was their life like as told through their bones. And the idea is to make make that into a person, right? To to, to this was a man, this was a woman. They were 20 years old, 40 years old. They had, you know, they had had some abscesses with their teeth and maybe broke a bone something like that. So we 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 can understand that person as they lived. And so doing a facial reconstruction is sort of the ultimate step in that. And that, that all of a sudden now you're not anymore looking at a, a skull with, you know, the empty orbits. You're actually looking at a face and it becomes a much more, a much more easy thing to, to identify with that person and to think about what was their life like? You know, how was, how were they interacting with other people? That sort of stuff. And, and certainly with the show, I mean, they, the, the, the climax is, is when, when the one host unveils the, the, the reconstruction, the other one goes, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a great moment for you though, as well. Oh, it was great. Absolutely. I, I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, it, it's hard to top that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I actually I, I didn't know 
how much our work was incorporated into the into the show and i knew they were emphasizing the work of the egyptians and 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 fair enough but uh, but it was it was really nice to see that sort of climax not bad for a story that started in chatham yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> <laughs> andrew delson thank you so much for your time tonight fascinating stuff my pleasure